Music retail has seen a lot of changes in recent years. With the closing of the Tower Records chain, it seemed that the death of the independent mom-and-pop retail store was upon us. And yet, vinyl sales are strong, new stores are actually opening, and physical sales by a mail order have become a huge part of the business. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Today, we talk to some people who know what's what in the retail scene. It's all coming up on the future of what? Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking with Josh Maydell of Other Music. Josh, welcome to The Future of What. Hey, Portia. Thanks for uh, checking in. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. So on today's episode of The Future of What, we are talking about the current state of indie retail. And we wanted to talk to you because for many years, you ran one of New York's most popular or interesting or (laughs) well-known record stores, Other Music, which unfortunately has recently gone out of business. That's sort of the, the beginning of this. But can you just start off by telling us all how you got into retail in the first place? Sure. So other music, we just closed a couple months ago at the beginning of the summer of 2016 after 20 years in Manhattan, in New York City. And we opened in the winter of 95. I was 25 and I was a musician who was, you know, somewhat busy touring and and playing with a couple different bands and and had a, you know, a, a pretty active life that was making a little bit of money, but, but wasn't really supporting me. And I was working part-time at a record store. I'd worked at a couple different stores and a shop that I'd been working at a place called Kim's Underground. I'd sort of helped start the music section at what became a a pretty well-known video and record store in New York City. I'd helped start this section with a couple of guys who, after a couple years at Kim's, we were just frustrated with the business side of that place. And and the owner, we, we felt, was more of a businessman than a music fan. And it just, it seemed like there was a great opportunity at the time as indie music was really starting to explode in the U.S. and and there was so much great music happening all over the world. You know, we did at Kim's and then and then later at Other Music a lot of imports, a lot of reissues, and just a lot of new music sort of from a broad spectrum of the underground. And we just kind of felt like it made sense to go out on our own. So we got together just a little bit of money and found a location in the village and opened up our store in the winter of '95. And that was 20 years ago, a blur of 20 years. (laughs) So you and I are actually exactly the same age. And I grew up in New York City. I played in rock bands in New York City. So, you know, Kim's was a big place for me, other music. But of course, we both lived through Tower Records, which, you know, for me, growing up in New York was the mecca. That was, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old, that's where my friends and I would go after school and paw through bins And there was something about that particular type of experience that I think was replicated in those other stores, you know, in your store and Kim's and other, you know, smaller stores that is missing. And, you know, a lot of people have been doing a lot of lamenting about like, oh, the old days when people could paw through record bins that, you know, that was the good, the good old days. But I do think that that has changed. And, you know, so what do you think exactly has changed that has caused this 
changing perception of retail? I mean, everything's changed in a lot of ways. And and yeah, I mean, I grew up going to Tower also, and, and that was actually a great store. I think people kind of forgot as that chain grew and, and, and they changed some of their policies. But when we were growing up in the city, Tower actually worked more like an indie shop than it did like a big chain store because they had local buyers at all their stores. So I think all or at least most of their music was purchased for the store by someone who was based in the store. So it was like a New York music fan who was on the New York music scene, who was going to shows, who was talking to customers, who was involved in what was happening. And Tower, it was a big chain and and there were ways that it was kind of faceless, but they brought in imports, they brought in domestic indies, they had a lot of mainstream music too, but they were tapped into a local scene and, and could be an active part of it. And that is definitely what our store was. And, and I think what all great independent music stores are, they're a part of a music scene, you know, they're a hub. I mean, when we closed our store, I mean, we, you know, we were very lucky. We were in New York City and we were just part of a exciting, active music culture in New York. And meaning in a very vibrant music city where there's an active music scene, where there's a ton of touring bands, where there's music industry. So there was all those parts that were working to make our store sort of a vibrant place. There was, you know, you could come in there and meet your favorite artist shopping and hook up with the guy who ran your favorite label. Or, you know, there's just so many different people coming through there all the time who we were learning from, who were learning from us, who were who were contributing to the vibrancy of the store. And and the thing that was most fascinating and, and emotional and really interesting when we announced we were closing, because we announced that the store was going to close about six weeks before we did. And we gave customers a chance to come say goodbye and come by and, and talk to us and, and, you know, shop one more time, sort of, you know, be a part of, of the store once more, or again, you know, some, we had a lot of people who hadn't shopped there in years coming back. But the thing that was so interesting to me was that I mean, every day there would be people coming in there, sometimes in tears, telling a story about how they met their husband or wife at other music, through other music, through connections there, how they met their bandmate, how they were inspired to start a band or to go into a creative career in some way, or, you know, just, I mean, people actually saying like, you, you, you helped me become who I am, help me help me connect with what I really wanted in life in a way that was really kind of amazing to, to be a part of it at the end there. It just made me kind of realize how much, you know, how much music means to people and how much in the era of music of record stores, which, which may be, you know, we may be at the very end of that era, a music store, a record store was sort of a center of a community. And it was a place where people would come. Yes, customer service and talking about records, that was a huge part of it, especially in the first decade of our existence pre-internet. We sold a lot of obscure music, a lot of hard to find, interesting, difficult music from all over the world and, and different eras, different styles. And having staff who were excited about what we had, who understood it, who understood how it fit in with, with other things that were going on, who could, someone would come in and say, hey, I'm looking for something new, you know, and, and we could get into a conversation about what they were into, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they were looking for, and, and help them hook up with something new. 
we did that every day. And that was the, the main driver of our business in a lot of ways. So we loved talking about what they were. That did change as time went on because people came in with a lot more knowledge. They were able to research and listen to things at home in a way they never could before. You know, eventually people could come in and wouldn't have to ask a question about what something sounds like because most of the time they could just pop it up on their phone and listen to, uh, you know, a song or two to decide for themselves what it sounded like. So things definitely changed over time. But I mean, that sort of sense of community and not just customers learning from us, but us learning from customers and us learning from artists and artists learning from us and, you know, people from all different sides of fans coming from all different places to kind of share in the love of music is what made our store survive. And, and I think kind of is what a record store is. Or, or possibly was. I find this really interesting because, you know, we talk a lot on this show because it's a show about the music business about, you know, is the internet a good thing or a bad thing for music? And it keeps being really neck and neck, right? It's like there are some really good things about the internet for music and there have been just some really terrible things about the internet for music. And I think retail is probably one of those areas where we'd have to fall somewhat on the terrible side. So it's interesting that you say what you just said, because, you know, that's a a perk I'd never thought of that, you know, people don't have to, they can actually listen to something beforehand, decide if they want it and then go to their record store and buy it. I guess the fear being that why go to the record store at all, if you can just buy it online. Well, that's true. Why buy it at all? And there's pluses and minuses to that. The thing you can't forget is that some music takes more than a, than a 30-second listen to know if you like it or not. And, and so I think there's a lot of plus sides to how easy it is to explore and discover music now. For underground artists, it's much easier to find their audience and to be heard than it ever was before. The thing is, it also encourage, people are encouraged by the, just the way digital culture works to keep clicking, to click through, to click past. Listen, nah, listen, nah, listen, nah see if something strikes you, you know? So I do think it's true that a lot of the best, most important music to me and, and, and to all of us is challenging. It, it's not something that can be understood that quickly. And I think that's the downside to the way we learn about new music now is that the tendency is if it doesn't strike you in the first 30 seconds or a minute that you might just move on. It used to be when you had to, when you stared at that record in the store and, and finally decided you were going to put your $12 down and, and buy it and take it home, often when you had never heard a single song, or maybe you'd heard one song on the radio, or maybe it was just on a label that you liked, or, or by an artist that you liked, or just had a cool cover, you kind of had to commit to it, and you would keep listening to it over the course of, of days and weeks, even if you didn't really love it, because you didn't have endless options. So you would keep listening to it and, and you might learn after a month, hey, you know what, this this thing is amazing. I just, it took me a while to get it. Yep. That's, and that, you know, I've had that experience in my own life and I know that that's true. And I mean, I'm sure you have too. So quickly, just tell us, you know, over the last 20 years, what was your experience running a retail store in terms of the business? You know, when did you start to see a decline? Did it take a really long time for that decline to happen? Did it happen gradually? Like what, what was your experience? So we opened in the winter of 95 and the early 2000s, like the, you know, the, the first half of, of that decade were probably our biggest years. CDs were huge. 
reissues, new music too, you know, just before, you know, what year did iTunes launch? I can't remember now, but it, it, you know, sort of like just before and in the early days of iTunes, that was, that was when, you know, we were busy all the time and it, it was a very slow, gradual decline in our business that really paralleled the decline in album sales nationally. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we outlasted Tower Records by a decade. You know, we, we were we were right across the street from from that Tower Records you and I were discussing. Mm-hmm. We out, we outlasted them from a, by a decade. We outlasted Virgin by by many years. We outlasted so many stores. But that said, even though our the music we dealt with was, you know, we dealt with a lot of underground music and 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 more esoteric stuff. The decline in our sales really mirrored the decline in in the music industry. The kind of gradual slump in sales that happened over the years. At the same time, of course, our expenses kept on creeping up. And, you know, it, it, it's always, in my mind, uh, this may not be true for every record store owner out there, but I mean, for us, it was always a labor of love. Kind of, it was, we, it, it was the greatest job in the world because you got to be around so much great music. You got to hear so much stuff, hang out with so many interesting people, get free records, get to go to all the, you know, get free concert tickets just get to sort of interact with the, with the great creative community and be a part of that. It was always a tough business to make money at. Even in our best years, it's not like it was like a, you know, a, a hugely lucrative business because cause record retailing has always been a tough business. The margins are very small compared to any other type of retailing out there. You know, the wholesale cost, of vinyl and CDs and, and then the, you know, there's the retail, there's the, whatever the suggested list price or whatever. Usually we would be a couple dollars below that just because that's where everybody was. You know, there was a list price and, and you, even if, but even if you sold it for full list price, you know, you were lucky if you were making a few dollars on each record. And, and so you'd have to sell a lot of records to make it work. And we did sell a lot of records. And in fact, we sold a lot of records right up to the end, but, the margins got smaller, the, you know, the business just got harder and harder. I mean, very much driven by, you know, downloading, illegal downloading, then legal downloading, then streaming. I think streaming more than anything, because it, it, it really is just so, so convenient and has, has a lot, so much to offer people, but also other sides of the internet. You know, I think that, well, first of all, when we opened, because we were such a specialized store, we had a very broad selection, but it was like, you know, we, we pulled together underground music from all over the world. People would come, not just New Yorkers, but when tourists came to New York, oh, music fans would make a pilgrimage to our store with their pockets full of money <laughs> because they hadn't seen any of this stuff in their hometowns. Right. There wasn't, you know, the, the way you would, if you, you could, of course, mail order records always, but you'd have to get like a physical print catalog right. from Forced Exposure or, or another of the interesting mail order places, get the print catalog in the mail, write a letter with a check telling them what you wanted. If they had it in stock, you'd get it back a few couple weeks later. I mean, it was complicated to stay on top of, of music and you were reading print fanzines to find out what was new. There just was not a network to, to explore this stuff. So we had people coming from all over the U.S., all over the world, spending a lot of money at our store all the time. That changed when you could mail order anything online in a moment. Also, 
shops around the world, I think, got a lot better as information became a lot easier to share. And, and you know, the, as all the distributors were available online, the labels could be contacted much easier. So a lot of shops started carrying a lot of interesting stuff all over the place. And, and nowadays, even beyond mail order sites, you know, as music in general, I mean, there's a couple people still buying records these days. There's like, you know, just record collectors who, who have never, maybe they, you know, most of them are buying CDs and never progressed past CDs. They have a beautiful stereo at home. They like owning it. They have a, they have a CD player in their car too. In New York, people have small apartments and they, you know, they just, they have a, they have a setup where they have been buying CDs and they continue to buy CDs. Then there's the vinyl people who are, who are a different type, who are just like, you know, it's a little bit different approach. People who are buying vinyl, it's a little bit more of a, of a passion or something. It's not just about the music, but it is about the, the format. It's not just about getting the record a lot of time. It's about getting the blue swirl vinyl that comes with the bonus seven inch and the slip mat in the package or something. Having that cool first edition that the labels and the artists are really doing more and more these days, making special indie versions and, you know, special limited versions for the big fans, people who are buying that kind of stuff, they can just mail order it from the labels or from the artist fan sites themselves. You know, they, in some ways that sort of specialized approach aiming at, at collectors kind of cuts out the record store because even if you can buy those wholesale at a store, you never have either you get stuck with too many or you can never get enough when there's something hot that people want. They're never sure when they come down to the record store, are they going to have that, that limited version in stock or not. So for that reason, they tend to just pre-order it from the labels a lot of the time anyway. So it's not just streaming music, but I just think the whole culture of how we consume everything, including music, has just been so changed by digital culture. Yeah. So what I think I'm hearing you say is that it's possible that we're moving to a retail environment where people buy things online and buy physical stuff via mail order, just sort of over the internet. Is that what you think is, is yeah, going I on? Mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and of course, I mean, the main thing for music is streaming. You know, streaming is, you know, everybody that I know, that's how they consume most of their music is streaming. I mean, or, or that's a stretch, obviously. I, I spent years in a record store and I know a lot of huge record collectors, but, but, but most people, most of those people also stream a lot of music. So, I mean, streaming is the first thing, but I just think that the physical side of it, I don't think the physical side's about to disappear. I mean, I think CDs probably will disappear sometime in the relatively, you know, not too far future. Vinyl's going to stick around, but I just don't know that it's a tough business to support yourself when you're paying rent on a physical store, at least in New York City, you know. Definitely. Well, Josh Maydell, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What. We appreciate it so much. Sure. It was nice chatting.
was Simple Life by Summer Cannibals. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking with Ken Chapaikode of Green Noise Records. Ken, welcome back to The Future of What? Thanks, Parsha. So today we're talking record stores and you being a person who has owned a record store for how long? Uh, It's been 12 years now. Wow, 12 years. Yeah. So you're a perfect person to talk to. Oh, thank you. So tell us, I mean, 12 years. Okay, I have to do math. What does that put us at? 2004? End of 2004. I think I moved here one of the first days of actually of January 2005. So it's technically been a little bit less than 12 years, but. Right. So you had, I mean, that's an interesting time to enter the record store business. Definitely. Because it kind of went down. I would assume. Yeah. After that. I got it for cheap though. (laughs) (laughs) So that's good. It was a fully functioning business before you bought it? Oh, yes. Green Noise Records has actually been around in one form or another since 1989. It was founded by Ryder Green, hence the name Green Noise Records. And it was in uh, Eugene from 89 till 2000 when he moved it to Portland. And then him and his partner, Jen, ran it from 2000 to the end of 2004, at which point I took over. Cool. Fantastic. Had you worked in record stores before that? Yeah, a little bit. I had worked, in fact, my last day job had been working at Sonic Boom Records right. in Seattle. And then, you know, I'd worked at more in distribution and, and at labels. Like I worked at Mortem Distribution and I worked at Rhetoric Distribution mm-hmm. and records before that. So I hadn't really had a ton of experience like working at record stores, but, you know, I really, that's very much how I grew up. You know, like there, I can name a bunch of great record stores that were, you know, very influential to me, you know, growing up in punk rock and, you know, places where I was just really, I may as well have worked there because I hung out there somewhere, (laughs) put it that way. Yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that's something, you know, I feel like we're sort of the end, the tail end of, of that breed of people who was really raised in the Tower Records era. So when you took over the record store in 2004... What was your experience? You know, did you have a couple of really good years to start out with? I mean, what kind of, did you see the decline coming pretty quickly or did it last a long time before a decline? You know, I don't know as far as the retail store that we've really seen a big decline. Oh, that's Um, really interesting. Business wasn't great when I took it over. I mean, they were pretty much making, you know, just enough money to like not get the light shut off every month. Uh So I pretty much knew it was going to be, you know, an uphill you know, an uphill battle or whatever Right. when I took it over. And, you know, I mean, I think that that over the years, I mean, sales really have improved over the years, but that's been that's been more on the website side than the retail side. What I did is, you know, I also had a website for Dirt Nap Records and I, I kind of merged the two. Mm-hmm. And I sort of figured that, you know, back then and still to this day, we always do color vinyl versions of all the Dirt Nap releases that are only available on the website. And that really has been successful in driving traffic to the site and, and you know, people clean out a lot of store stock while they're there to pick up the newest Dirt Nap release. And I kind of figured that was kind of, you know, if I had a strategy when I started to like boost sales, that was pretty much it. And, you know, in that sense, I guess it's worked pretty well. Right. We talked to Josh Madell, who ran other music in New York. And that's what he said, too, is that is the online sales are sort of where he's seen the growth. Oh, definitely. Over in retail in the last several years. So did you guys have to do, I mean, I'm interested in the nuts and bolts. So sure. like, was somebody packing those orders Yeah, I mean, for you, like no, the store I mean, staff or no, like who was doing that? No, not really. I mean, you know, sometimes we bring an extra help when we have like a really big release that we put up there, but you know, 95% of the time it's just me. Really? Just oh you? yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, people are always like surprised to hear that, but like <sighs> in a lot of ways with like the label stuff, we've kind of automated and outsourced a lot of the work, but mail order is the one thing that I've always 
wanted to keep really tight control over. Probably not the most efficient way to do things, but it's really, <laughs> it's really all I know at this point. <laughs> That's awesome. So I have heard that the store is going to be sold. Hopefully. Yes. So why, why did you make that decision to sell the store? Well, I mean, there's a couple of big reasons. I mean, you know, the, the really obvious one is that my wife wants to move back to Texas in a couple of years. And I don't really think, I feel like the store is, you know, it's profitable, but I don't feel like it's so profitable that it would really be worth the time and effort and expense of packing it up and moving it across the country. Gotcha. I sort of think, um, you know, a more efficient thing to do would just be to, to kind of wash my hands of it entirely. So tell us about your experience running a physical retail store over the last 12 years. Like, what have you seen change? Have you seen, like, you know, everybody keeps talking about this vinyl revolution. Uh -huh. Have you seen it? What have you seen? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think culturally, as far as the kind of music that we specialize in, vinyl's always been very big. So I don't think that there's been, you know, as drastic of a change with our business as there are for potentially, you know, I would think for some other record stores. Although, I mean, we definitely sell less CDs. I mean, you know, let's not kid ourselves. But, you know, vinyl was has, was always really big from, from day one of taking over the shop. So I don't think there's been that dramatic of a change. But as far as things like CDs, we're definitely... You know, we definitely don't buy as many. We don't, definitely don't bring as many in. Mm -hmm. You know, almost every time somebody walks in on the off the street with like an armload of used CDs to sell, we almost always tell them to take a <laughs> hike, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's that's been a real big one. Have you guys seen, what about cassettes? Do you stock cassettes? Yes, we stock cassettes. And that is definitely an area that things have changed. I mean, it seems like 10 years ago, we literally couldn't give them away. And now, now people come in looking for them. Yeah. And... And, you know, it seems like a lot more bands are bringing in, you know, cassettes to sell on consignment. And, you know, it's it's definitely something that we're a little more interested in now just because, you know, we're getting people asking about that stuff a lot more than they used to. Right. How about the type of customer that you get? Has that changed over the last 12 years? No, not really. I mean, I think that, the, you know, basically, I think that the entire time we've had the store, you know, the retail business has been, you know, side of the business has been kept afloat by like, you know, a handful of like extremely you know, super loyal and dedicated customers who would come in regularly. And that has changed a lot over the years, like the, the actual customers. I mean, it's it's turned over, like we, we lose them and then we get new ones. <laughs> but they're all the same type of sort of super committed to buying. Oh, sure, sure, definitely. Stuff. And, you know, I think that, you know, the label is well known enough at this point that, you know, especially in the summer, we get a lot of people, what I call like the the punk tourist circuit. <laughs> we get a lot of people from out of town coming in and, and spending a lot of money and a lot of bands on tour stopping by. And, you know, that that kind of thing has been another, you know, a really big thing that's kind of kept us in business is that, you know, we do pretty well with, with out-of-towners too. And we're kind of on a lot of people's radar right. as, you know, somewhere to stop when they're in Portland. Right. It's interesting because somebody said something to me about uh, a few months ago about the elitism of record shopping. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is a really interesting way to put it because to some extent what you're saying is your consumers are educated, right? They're educated in this way. They they know what they want. They know what you guys have. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they don't come in off the street like, oh, music. I like music, <laughs> you know? They're way more focused. They kind of have an idea of what they want to find. Oh, sure. And I mean, that's that describes, I, I would think, you know, almost our entire customer base. Mm -hmm. Our stock is so specialized that we tend to be pretty low traffic in that, you know, we don't get a lot of people wandering off the street asking if we have, 
you know, whatever the new release CD is, you know, we don't really get like a steady stream of people like that in, but instead we get fewer customers, but the kind of people who do come in tend to spend money. Like, you know, we, we seems like we have very few people who wander in and then wander out without buying anything. And and it seems like people, people who come in kind of know what they're looking for. And it seems like a lot of people, like, this is one thing that's changed just in the last few years. A lot of people come in and they've already checked out the stock on our website. So they pretty Mm. much know what they're looking for. Right, right. Mm. That's interesting. That's what Josh said too with other music is that Mm. they used to get a lot of people coming in and say, and they would have these conversations where they'd be like, well, if you like this, you might like this. Mm-hmm. But he said that the way that that's changed is now people have already listened. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. And just as somebody who literally grew up, you know, hanging around in record stores, that is, yeah, that's something that's really big time changed in that, you know, basically at this point, nobody buys a record without listening to it first. Mm-hmm. You know, be, you know, just about everybody has actually heard the stuff that they're buying which is fine. I mean, you know, I mean, there. It, I definitely can't, you know, hold it against anybody to expect to want to hear a record and know that they like it before they plunk down 15 bucks for it or whatever. Right. But, you know, it, I think it definitely sort of lessens the role a little bit of the record store clerk as far as, you know, turning people onto stuff and making recommendations and saying, well, if you like this, you should check this out. Although, you know, we still do that too. I mean, it's not like nobody does it anymore. Right. right. But yeah, I, I definitely think that our customers are a little bit more you know, educated and they sort of know what they're looking for a little bit more. Right. I'm just fascinated from a cultural standpoint because I keep thinking about this in terms of, you know, music fandom overall, because I've said for years and years that the vast majority of people actually don't like music, that it's really only the subset of wackos like us who just like are super obsessed with music. And most of the rest of the people are just willing to be happy to listen to whatever is on when they turn on the radio. Oh, sure. You know, and hence the popularity of top 40 music because it's just what people, what most people hear. Mm-hmm. And they're like, that sounds great. And also people, I think, go through phases in their lives when they're more interested in music. Like, let's say college. They go to college and they have, you know, three or four years of intense interest in music. And then they get out of college and go off to their lives. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't play as big of a role. Sure, sure. So it's just interesting to me that the record store... What I what I hear you saying is that is that this particular group of people have been the record store aficionados all along. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And the the you know the individual faces you know change over right. time, but you know yeah, I mean we're and you know I don't know if that's typical for all record stores. I mean I think it's probably a little more so for us because we're we really have a very specific focus and reason for being at the, at the store, and so we we tend to attract you know, like-minded people, I think a little bit more than, you know, a story that maybe kind of tries to to appeal to like a slightly broader audience. Because the, you know, the people who, you know, you described as, you know, just listening to Top 40 and not really paying a lot of attention otherwise. I mean, we don't really get those people in the shop at all. And we never really have. I mean, I don't feel like that's really changed that dramatically. Well, anyway, Ken Code, thank you so much for coming back and being with us again on The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. Always fun to be here.
was mud all winter Cause you made tracks And I did too But I came back So don't, don't, don't explain love to me Love, love, love is not why we leave It is real life dreams Make believe people you can't And we drop, drop tears like telemarks And it feels like snow And it keeps us apart was Tally Marks by Tao Wynn. Chad Dahlstrom is the COO of Discogs. Chad, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. Okay, so Discogs is an amazing website, which we use in my office all the time. We're like addicted to it. But can you just give us a quick overview of what brought you to start this website? Discogs originally started as a way to manage your collection of, of albums that you had in in a very specific and open source way. So basically what we were looking at was this people had all these, you know, mostly electronic albums in the beginning. And they had these huge collections and they wanted to, you know, share the collections with other people, let them know what they had, even trade. And so we built this open source database, kind of Wikipedia style, although this is actually predates Wikipedia, where everybody could add their albums and as that grew, there was just more excitement to look at new albums, talk about albums you didn't have. And eventually that grew into, hey, this is the place to store and archive every album that's ever been made in the world. And that's really the direction we're at now is, is preserving all these, these creations and in very detailed open source fashion. So people add you know, really small details about albums that maybe you wouldn't even find on the album cover itself or Sometimes the labels don't even know until they see it later. So the reason we wanted to talk to you today is this episode is about the current state of retail. And and everyone that we've talked to, we've talked to Josh Maydell from Other Music, which just closed in New York. We've we talked to Ken Chapaikode, who owns Green Noise Records here in Portland and is about to sell that store. What they both said was that it's really moved to online. Retail has just moved to online big time. And when we talk to people that we know, pretty much so many people are getting their stuff from Discogs now. They just order it directly from Discogs when they hear a new record is coming out, which is pretty amazing that you guys have managed to corner that market without even actually trying to be that in the first place. Well, and and to be fair, they're not actually ordering it from Discogs. They're ordering it from a a seller on Discogs, many of which still are retail stores. And and even though you are seeing closings, we're also seeing openings. And Josie Records coming out of Dallas, Texas is, I think, up to three or four stores now. And, you know, the model's changing, of course. They are a mixture, they're a blend of, of having their physical store and selling online, including through Discogs. They're, they're definitely kind of a fan of Discogs and a partner 
but what I think is kind of cool in the stuff that I'm seeing succeed, it's, it's, it's a blend, you know, that definitely it's hard to be a, a boutique record store or a small store that just sells records. That's, that's hard right now. But what I am seeing being successful is a lot of labels are opening stores. And so they're kind of doubling down and distributing through the store, having that store presence, which of course attracts more people to their music and label that are shopping. And also like Josie records, they're actually pressing records. They've got the shops and they're doing some of the, the old school, but beautiful thing where they have the concerts in the record store and bring the artists in and, and they're seeing a lot of success, but it is, I mean, it's changing and it's, it's a lot of online for sure. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I thought was interesting about something that both those guys said was, you know, Josh in particular, because other music was a very specific type of store, you know, people would come to that store who were record collectors and people who were excited about music, sort of that 1% or whatever it is of music buyers who actually really care I'm saying 1%, it's probably more like 0.000%. But but what he was saying is, you know, what used to happen is people would come in 20 years ago or 15 years ago and say, you know, what's good? And the, the clerks would say, oh, have you heard this? You know, it sounds like this and give them the descriptions. And now people are coming in saying, I already listened to this and I want it. And I think that's an interesting right. piece that the internet has given us that I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, and it, it depends on the genre of music. YouTube, of course, being the, the biggest provider of this, which still boggles my mind because it's now gotten to the worst audio quality <laughs> possible, but you, you do get the visual as well, so that's nice. A lot of people are discovering music through YouTube and you know going to shop for that. And you know, Discog has always been a niche like that. But yeah, that, that recommendation piece is... I mean, I still value that greatly. I love going to record stores and, and talking to the record shop owners because they, they know so much, but I, I can see the problem, you know, they, and especially if they want something specific and the store doesn't have it, it's so easy just to go to Discogs, go to eBay right. and try to find it. You're not going to wait to find it for you. And it's this immediacy that we live in today. So what have been the trends that you've noticed lately on Discogs? There's more of a shift towards, you know, very, it started very heavily in electronics, very strong still. I think we probably have the most complete collection of things for sale and the history of of that music is is very strong on Discogs, but we're seeing more rock and, you know, popular music come through. And we are, I would have not said a couple of years ago that we see many new things for sale, but now, like you said, a new album drops, I actually buy it from Discogs. And I've talked to some major distributors who are selling new stuff on Discogs and that I didn't see that coming. I never saw it as as a common marketplace for music. I always saw it as more of a niche for those those point zero mm-hmm. one, those collectors that that's really our, our bread and butter. That's who loves Discogs because of the details. I'm sure plenty of albums, you know, Taylor Swift is being sold on on Amazon, of course, but it it is actually on Discogs now too. So that's a bit of a new trend seeing them I'm seeing trends of labels directly selling, distributing through Discogs instead of going, you know, aggregator distributor and then online. So I kind of like, I love seeing that. I love seeing independent artists and labels, you know, take the, the most cut they can by, by pushing it directly to the, the customer if they're not through their own website. Yeah. Now my little wheels are turning. I'm like, mm, forget about Red Eye. <laughs> Let's knock out the middleman. <laughs> yeah, because... You know, if it's true that, that stuff's not dropping at stores, it, I don't, I mean, stores, there are some healthy stores and they're doing well and, and we're trying, you know, we don't want to see that go away. You know, we're not Amazon or eBay. We're not trying to take over the world of selling records. We just love the history of it and people wanted to sell through our site. So we did that. But 
the direct distribution, you know, why not? If it, it used to be, oh, you had to go get to, you know, Kmart or, or wherever to get distributed. And CD Baby grew up on that. And Allegiance uh, or Alliance, I forget which they are now, you know, it's the same. They're just pushing in these, these retail stores. But that's still majors, you know. I mean, you're not going to find an indie label in, in Kmart, nor are you looking for it there. Right. With the exception of Taylor Swift's label, which is an indie, so. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. She does some cool things. So, yeah, I mean, it, we, we're seeing that. We're, we're, of course, encouraging it. We, we love to see it, and we want to see these labels be successful because that also is, you know, niche stuff is, is, again, still really the core of Discogs. is not necessarily your mainstream. I mean, we, we sell plenty of copies of Delicate Sound, Sound of Thunder still, including represses that, you know, will, will keep happening. But at the end of the day, it's still like, it's still that long tail of music. And seeing that, we're, we're, we're trying to work with people to see how it goes, see if it's working. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're all about music. So it is another platform to distribute that way. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have a site out there that says that they're all about music, that really is all about music, you know, in a way <laughs> I that <know>. it's rare. <laughs> we want them to be. I mean, you guys in Bandcamp, and I mean, there's some, there's some great sites out there that, that are real. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. Chad Dahlstrom is the COO of Discogs. And thanks so much, Chad, for being with us on The Future of What today. Thank you. listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Jason Taylor is Sales and Label Strategy Director at Red Eye Worldwide. Jason, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks, Portia. Good to be here. Awesome. So today we are talking about retail and the sort of state of retail marketing for independent labels and others. And I wanted to talk to you because 
you work at a distributor, and so you guys have that sort of prime position between labels and stores where you can kind of get a sense of, you know, what is selling, how well things are selling, and how things have changed. So I wanted you to quickly give us a little quick background of how long you've worked at, at Red Eye and such. been at Red Eye for 10 years. Actually, I worked at an independent record store for about seven years prior to that. Cool. So 10 years is good. I was hoping you would say 10 years because that, I think, gives us a good overview of what's happened because a lot has happened in the last 10 years. So in general, what would you say, like, what have you seen over the last 10 years in, in terms of retail? In terms of retail over the last 10 years, I mean, things change on an almost yearly basis. I mean, when I first started here at Red Eye, you know, obviously CDs were still a dominant format. So slowly but surely, vinyl has overtaken that by far. So that's probably the biggest change. I mean, I think now, you know, a lot of record stores are reporting in the 65, 75% range for vinyl sales compared to CDs. So that's Whoa. quite the opposite of when I first started. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, of course, thinking of like your warehouse. I'm like, wow, it takes a lot more room to house vinyl than it does to house CDs. So that must be like just a logistical problem. Yeah, it's more to ship around. It's obviously more expensive to ship around. So it definitely has its challenges. Uh, getting it to where it needs to be in, in good shape is another challenge. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I guess the upside of that is there are no returns on vinyl. So it's not quite the same industry. I mean, back in the day when it was mostly CDs, you also had to think about the fact that a lot of those CDs were going to come back in the form of returns, sure. which then have to be accounted for and handled and like refurbished and all that stuff. Vinyl is just more of a like, can you get it to the store without smashing it, right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, obviously, you know, being a one-way product, there's a little more risk involved for the retailers. You know, within the CD days, you could buy as many as you wanted and, and hoped you sold them. And if not, no sweat. You know, returns, obviously not great for labels at the end of the day, but it did provide, you know, that flexibility. And, and now, you know, with vinyl, particularly with how much vinyl that is being put out into the marketplace, things get a little trickier stores, you know, they don't want a ton of vinyl sitting around and not selling. So We talked to the COO of Discogs on this episode, and, and he said some interesting stuff, which everyone is sort of echoing, which is that the mail order business has really increased for retail. So you're, you're still having people buy physical, but they're buying it over the internet from various retailers. Do you guys find that to be true? That's what we hear from a lot of indie retailers, like when we, you know, attend like a conference or something where independent retailers are around and and talking about things, they're all sort of encouraging each other to open their business up, expand it a little bit beyond just the brick and mortar space. Because, you know, I think there are, you know, people out there who will always want to support small business and then maybe they don't have a local record store or, you know, conversely, you know, a place like Discogs, you know, they have uh, records for sale there that you really they're really hard to find. You're not just going to walk into a record store and find that, or the chances are pretty slim anyway. So there's definitely a market out there for that. So what's your relationship with retailers like Amazon, where like, let's say you guys as a distributor would supply them, have the numbers really gone up or or what? Yeah, I mean, vinyl's up across the board for sure. I mean, as it becomes like a more and more, I almost hesitate to use the word mainstream format, but, you know, record players are selling, you know, it's like a top gift item every year. People are getting record players, you know, whether for their kids or, you know, older demographics saying, hey, I used to have one of those. So, you know, along with that, you know, people are, people are going to buy the vinyl so they can actually use that expensive piece of equipment. <laughs> 
And also a thing that has happened in the last 10 years is Record Store Day, which I think made a a pretty significant impact on retail in that, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if you were surprised, I don't want to say everyone was surprised, but some people were surprised that it was so popular right out of the gate. Yeah. Were you were you surprised? Yeah, I guess a little bit. I'm surprised it grew into what it became so quickly. I think the first year they did it was relatively small, but by the second year, you know, everybody was on board. You know, by then, all the labels, distributors, everybody was like, you know, wow, they're, they're, they really built something, you know, that's helpful for independent retail artists and labels alike. So, yeah, I mean, it's like yes and no, you know. Yeah, I'm surprised, but, you know, I think they were the right thing at the right time for the market, and they've been, you know, really smart about how they did it. I feel like since Record Store Day has been such a success, a couple of other days have popped up now, too. There's, like, what is it, Black Friday, yeah. and then mm-hmm. there's, like, Cassette Store Day. Yeah. So there's several days that have popped up as these also big retail moments in the calendar year. Yeah, and you know, additionally they're you know trying to get the, the vinyl Tuesday concept off the ground just as, you know, a weekly event that can, you know, drive traffic and then new vinyl releases to record stores, you know, year round. Oh, and that's interesting because of course now that we've had global release date so that all releases are moved to Friday, that kind of makes that's right. vinyl Tuesday kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a way, obviously, to, to keep that traffic flowing through the independent record stores during the week. You know, it depends on who you talk to, but not everybody was a huge fan of the, the Friday release date. You know, record stores really enjoyed that weekday traffic, and then customers would come back on the weekends and, and buy some more stuff. So now what you hear a lot of is, is a lot of that business is just, you know, consolidated down to the weekends. Right. Right. And then the biggest problem that I had heard about or thought about when global release date came up last year or two years ago, whatever it was, was the idea of restocking. So if you had the release date on a Friday and everybody bought the record, then the record store was out all weekend until you could reorder on Monday, which seems like just a really dumb idea. It's Yeah, it's kind of a perfect storm because, again, we are talking about vinyl where record stores can't step out. You know, they can't buy more than they feel like they can sell in, in a reasonable amount of time. So that was certainly my biggest concern as well. You know, I don't, I don't see numbers dropping drastically, but it really just depends on what record stores you talk to. You know, some are still vehemently opposed to it and have very good you know, reasons for that and others will tell you that they hasn't affected them that much. So one of your titles is label strategy director. So yeah. as the label strategy director, do you help labels figure out how many units to produce of a certain title and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, certainly we're always looking at the numbers. You know, we don't want labels to over-manufacture and can get stuck with a lot of products sitting in the warehouse. You know, oftentimes the life cycle of some records can be very short, just depending on you know what's happening around the release, whether it's you know touring or press or radio or anything like that. So it's really important to kind of get that number right because, as you know, it's you know not cheap to manufacture vinyl. Well, and also it takes forever. I mean, the idea of being understocked on a record that is really selling well is terrifying because what you're just going to tell everyone to wait six months <laughs> yeah. so you can make some more. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's not an easy time. Yeah. yeah. Has that ever happened to you guys? Have you guys ever been just drastically understocked of a release? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sometimes you just get caught off guard, you know, or there's late breaking press or, you know, they add a tour later on, you know, things sometimes just happen and they're really good 
problems to have in some ways because it's great exposure for the band. But when you can't, you know, have the vinyl to get out to the marketplace, you know, everybody's, we're just wishing we had more in stock. (laughs) But, you know, you make those decisions so far out, like you said, you know, you're six months out from the release and it's, you know, it's just hard to know what's going to happen at that point. Yeah. Sometimes you have a really good idea, but, you know, you definitely get caught off guard sometimes. And then we have to talk about the lowly CD, which as you started this interview, you said has has diminished. But the crazy part is it's not gone. (laughs) It's still there. It's not gone at all. And in fact, you know, we're actually seeing CD numbers rise just slightly, you know, even at independent retail. And, you know, the reason, you know, I believe that may be the case is, you know, there's a lot of very overpriced vinyl out in the marketplace right now. You're seeing records for $40 that should be probably 25. So, you know, even the consumers are starting to sort of balk at those prices and say, you know, I'll just buy the, the $12 CD. I don't really need this as a $40 vinyl version. So we're seeing a slight uptick in independent retail with CDs. Wow. I'm kind of shocked to hear that, honestly. But... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's we've been talking about the death of the CD for probably more than half the time CDs have existed. That's true. That's true. It's it's like the format will never actually die. <laughs> it's just it's the vampire format. It'll just hang on. And cassettes are back. So. <laughs> and cassettes are back. Exactly. <laughs> so go figure. Yeah. Well, I'm a child of cassettes. <laughs> Same here. So I loved. I always loved cassettes. But I mean, eight track really died. But that was a, I think that was a very limited format. I don't think there were a lot of places you could play. Yeah, I'm not sure that one's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> like Betamax, eight track and Betamax—they're gone for good. Sorry. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Crazy. So, are there any other retail trends that you can think of that you'd like to throw in there? No, I mean, I just think like you know, with the price of vinyl going up, you know, and this is you know not the kind of labels and artists we work with, you know, that stuff's always been really fairly priced, but you know, the more people walk into record stores and see, you know, they get that sticker shock on the price of vinyl. That probably concerns me and independent retail more than anything, because what you don't want is the perception that music is grossly overpriced. Right. Which is, uh, it's so ironic because think of it, you know, on the internet, it's free, but then you have to pay $40 for a right. <laughs> This makes no sense. What's going on, people? Right. It's hard to call, you know, it's hard to say, you know, art is overpriced, but you know what I mean? There's, there's, you know, sort of a standard price that people should largely be, you know, in that realm. So when people are over and over again seeing records that just cost too much or they can't afford it, that was part of the reason cassettes kind of came back because, you know, younger kids had cars with cassette players that could buy you know, four or $5 cassettes, the price of, you know, one album on vinyl. And so that's why we've seen, you know, that little uptick on the cassette market just to a, a minuscule number in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, people are going to be price conscious at the end of the day. Right. Unless you're burger records, in which case you're doing great. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they carved it out. Yeah. They made, they created that niche and they're, they're living in it. That's, that's right. Good. That's right. Awesome. Well, Jason Taylor is Sales and Label Strategy Director at Red Eye Worldwide. Jason, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What today. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Summer Cannibals, Tao Win, New Dog, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 